The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Amen. Well, if you would turn again to Exodus 20 that was read earlier. We are coming now. We've been working our way through this book of Exodus in our Sunday morning expositions, and we come to this section on God's law that that really is a section that our world in many ways wars against this chapter. In fact, I was reading this week, Adolf Hitler explained the Nazi mission was not just to end the Jews, it was actually to, in his words, end the Jewish scripture of Exodus 20. Here's a direct quote. We are fighting against the most ancient curse, these are his words, that humanity has brought upon itself against the so-called Ten Commandments, against them we are fighting. And he described his life mission in another place as to destroy, quote, the tyrannical God of the Jews and his life-denying Ten Commandments. And that's just an example of, of how our world has been at war with what we're about to study. The Third Reich broke all ten. And they tried to reverse these very words that God actually gave to his people to be their life. And they fought against God's law and they actually came under its curse that only the gospel can save people from. But I want us not just to think back then. Don't just think of Adolf Hitler. Think of atheists in our lifetime who have been fighting against the Decalogue. In 1980, our Supreme Court ruled against them being on public school walls, as they said, that posted copies of those two tablets may, this is part of their majority opinion, quote, they may induce school children to read, meditate upon, perhaps to even venerate and obey the commandments, which they said are not a permissible state objective. Of course, there's all kinds of other things taught to kids But things like thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal is not permissible. How about the summer of 2003? Roy Moore, Alabama chief justice, was removed from his office because he refused to remove a stone monument of the commandments from outside their courthouse. But it's not only atheists. There are antinomians among churchgoers. Nomian is is the word that we get from the law the law of God, an antinomian means against the law as applying to Christians. So law like in Exodus 20. There's people who wrongly think that grace negates law. But look with me at Exodus 20, and I want us to see how they begin, because grace is actually the Old Testament foundation for the law. Verse 1, Exodus 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that's grace right there, to save and to redeem slaves. Then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And even that is gracious. And we'll study verse 3, and we're going to actually study each of the commandments in the weeks ahead over the next 10 weeks, but today I want to introduce God's law the way he himself introduces it. 
as words of his grace. In fact, one of the books I've been reading on the Ten Commandments by Kent Hughes calls them his ten words of grace, and he labors to show how there's grace in all of them, not just at the beginning. These are not ten rules to earn deliverance. These are ten responses to those that God has delivered already by his unearned grace. This is not a ten-step program to be redeemed. These are ten statements to those who are redeemed. We need to understand that. This is not a legalistic bondage. This is for those that God has liberated from bondage. That's what he says in the beginning in Egyptian slavery. This is not about works for salvation. Some of the Jews misunderstood that. This is a, and in many people, many religions misunderstand that. This is about worship of our Savior. In fact, the first three commands are about worship of Him. And then in verse 10, in the fourth commandment, He gives Israel a gracious gift in rest, unlike their old taskmasters who gave them no rest, no relief. And then in verses 12 through 16, in commands 5 through 9, God is graciously protecting family and property and life's sanctity and true testimony. And then the heart of God's moral law also includes our heart. That's why in, at the end of it, there's this command that is, you shall not covet, which is what's going on in your heart. That's verse 17. And there's some people who say, we don't need law, we just need love. But God's law actually shows us what love looks like. In fact, when Jesus was teaching, talking about the command to love your neighbor, he had to show them what that love actually looks like, what your neighbor actually is. In verse 6, so God's law shows his real love, God's love and our love. Look at verse 6. God says he is showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my Commandments, that's not just for Old Testament generations, that's for thousands of generations to come. Loving obedience is the message of the New Testament as well. And God here is showing what love to him and others looks like in this chapter. For all generations, the first half of the commandments are are vertical. The second half of the commandments are horizontal. We could say it another way. The first half of the commandments are showing you how do you love the Lord, your God. The second half of the commandments are how do you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the framework of what sums up the law according to the New Testament. This is a law that's not to restrict It's not to ruin your life. This law was actually given, and the command in verse 12 explicitly says, this is to help live long and prosper. Honoring father and mother is that it would go well with you, that you would enjoy fuller life. As Paul says, this is for joy. We could say the chief end of this chapter is to help us know how to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so I want us to see... As we look at these first couple of verses here, as an introduction to the Ten Commandments, the importance of these ten in context, the interpretation of God's law by Christ, 
and then some implications of the Decalogue that I think will help set up this framework that as we walk through each of them, this I think it's a good way to start with the context, but we, we can't ignore what Christ said, and then we need to consider how these apply or what they imply for us. So starting in verse 1, And God spoke all these words. And that word words is later combined with the word ten, to call them the ten words, if, if you don't know what that word deca log means, deca is ten, log is, or logos is the word words. And when we talk about the decalogue, we're talking about the ten words. That's how they're said later in Scripture. They are ten commandments, but he uses that word words. And, and what was so important about these ten is what I want to start with in context. And I think there's a number of things we can see. <clears throat> the first is that These in particular, all Israel heard audibly from the fire. This is different than other commands that would come later. So last time we saw that they heard his voice thundering out this. But look with me at chapter, in the context here, chapter 20, verse 18. This is right after what Kyle read earlier. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. So there's, there's a lot accompanying what was read in our scripture reading earlier. Here's the response. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. This is after the ten are given. And this is what they say to Moses. You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God, speak to us. The idea is anymore. Don't don't let him keep speaking that way or we're going to die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you. That you may not sin. God started out this way for a reason. Moses is saying, it is right to fear him. If that leads you to not sin, that kind of fear. The people, verse 21, stood Far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So there's a shift now. The people are staying back. Moses is now going into the presence of God. And then verse 22, And the Lord said to Moses, so not to Israel now, he's saying this to Moses, Thus you, Moses, shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked to you from heaven and that you there at the end is you all in in southern they say y'all or I understand in Ireland they say yous or or something like that for plural God is speaking audibly these 10 to all of Israel but now there's a shift here to the rest of the chapter he's going to start talking about sacrifices and altars and there's going to be regulations in chapter 21 through 23 that are also shifting from that you to third person if this happens and then these are laws for the civil society of Israel all of it is inspired and we'll study all of it but there there is an importance in the order these first 10 commandments and only these were thundered out for all of them to hear with all of that phenomenon and now as he gives other commands to come. Moses heard them to retell Israel. All of them are important. All of them were to be obeyed by Israel. But there's a a change in verse 22 for the law is now going to be 
taught by Moses versus the first ten that all of them heard from heaven. And he wants them to remember, don't you remember when I spoke to you those words? Israel actually would count 603 more commands after these first ten given through Moses. But these first ten, they directly got from God with smoke, lightning, mountain shaking, and all of that. And it's interesting also that verse 2 is you, plural, in Hebrew, but all ten of the commandments in verses 3 through 17 that were read earlier are actually you, singular. He's speaking to all Israel, but it's interesting, there's a special emphasis in the way, like he's, each of these needs to apply to you individually in a, in a special way, as a solemn duty. You've heard all the law, but these are very important. Deuteronomy 10.4 uses this phrase, the ten commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire. That's Moses speaking to all Israel, reminding them they all heard. Those were still that were alive at that time. They heard those Ten Commandments out of the fire at Sinai. And so turn to Exodus 31 just to see something else in the context that I think is important. Exodus 31, verse 18. And this is God at the end of the time up on the mountain. He gave to Moses... Exodus 31, 18, he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. And this is also, we might say, a second reason. This is the only scripture that God did this way, written by his own finger on on stone, and it was stored in the only part of Scripture stored in the Ark of the Covenant, and that was to be stored and guarded and kept in the most holy place. Now turn to Exodus 34. And after the two tablets were broken in sin, if, if you know that story, <clears throat> God again doubles down. He repeats it, Exodus 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I, this is God speaking, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Verse 4, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That sounds a lot like the gospel, doesn't it? The Lord, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love, but he love, but he will judge the guilty. And as he's writing those commandments again permanently, he's proclaiming his character. And that, I think, also brings us to a a third reason that it's important to study these things. They proclaim or show us God's character. Verse 8 goes on to his judgment, quoting the 
the second commandment, but notice as God is writing the ten down again, he is proclaiming his character as, as merciful and gracious. His law is about his love. We don't separate the two. It's his loving law. The end of verse 28, still in chapter 34, verse 28, he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant. That's another important word. The words of the covenant, the ten commandments. Literally in Hebrew, that's the ten words. But it's right and fine to understand that these are ten commandments. And they're etched in stone. Not to be erased is the idea. These ten show his unchanging character and covenant grace. How these principles are applied, he can change. But who he is never changes. And that takes us to a fourth reason. It kind of ties in with that, that this is important. The prior context, I think, shows us that these ten contain moral law beyond Israel. So let's just think about the story. And I know not all of you have been here through the series, but I trust many of you know the story, how they came out of Egypt. And really, the, one of the problems with Pharaoh and Egypt was Pharaoh was putting himself above God. He was violating the first commandment, and he is judged. And the plagues, if you study them like we did, they, they actually are judging Egypt's graven image Worship. There's specific plagues that are showing the impotence of their gods of the frogs and the crops and, and river gods and, and all of that in violation of the second commandment. And then the, the third commandment back in Exodus 20 is that God will not hold people guiltless who dishonor his name. And, and that applies to these Gentiles here. Pharaoh, when God comes and says he's Yahweh, he says, who is this Yahweh? I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let your people go. He is dishonoring the name of the Lord. And then when God puts Pharaoh down in Exodus 9, he says this, I, I'm going to show my power over you so that my name will be proclaimed to all the earth. God is not going to let Pharaoh get away with how he's dishonoring his name. He's going to judge Pharaoh and make his name not even not even written in the text because his name gets wiped out, but the name of the Lord beginning in Exodus goes to the whole world. And you could say Egypt broke all ten. Think of their slave masters who, who gave no rest or day off. Think of how they dishonored the parents of the Hebrews in the most horrific way by stealing their babies. And another violation of the commandment, murdering their babies in the most horrific way. In the river. And Egyptians were notorious in this era for committing adultery and, and coveting everything and trying to amass kingdoms from others. But even though they didn't have the, the law thundered to them from Sinai, they were accountable to it. And what this is showing us, even in the narrative, is that beyond Israel and before Sinai, God had and has a moral law. For the world. We need to understand that. This is so important. That's why back in Genesis, Joseph knew it was sin for him to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. Cain, when he murdered his brother Abel, his countenance fell. Shem and Japheth, or Japheth, however you say that, they knew to honor their 
father and that it was wrong the way Ham was dishonoring their father and Ham was judged in his generations for that and Shem and Japheth were blessed for how they honored their father even when he was drunk and not being honorable. They honored their father. Not because there was a verbal command that's recorded in Scripture, but, but these things were, were known to them. I think part of being made in God's image includes conscience. And our, our conscience doesn't know all the things that God calls us to, but there is a, a conscience, a little kid, even before they can really understand your words, knows right and wrong and knows there's certain things they're not to do. You don't have to teach them that. See, before God put a law on stone, he put in man's soul a law of morality, a sense of right and wrong. And I I think this is exactly what God said would happen. If Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they would now have a knowledge of good and what? And evil, just like God promised. There are things that are evil that aren't intuitively, naturally known to all people. In fact, Paul in Romans, even talking about one of the Ten Commandments in Romans 7, 8, says some of the commands he would have never known without the written law, like thou shalt not covet. I think the Sabbath is another one in the category like that, not known until it was revealed in in Exodus, but especially commands 5 through 9. If you study history of all around the world, people know those instinctively and Universally, all are responsible to worship God rightly, as the the first half of the commandments say, even if they're ignorant to it. Romans 1 and 2, and maybe we'll look at that next week, I think shows, even all around the world, since creation, the accountability man has had to worship God rightly, and what happens when he suppresses that, what he already knows, and, and I think we see that playing out in our world and in our nation But the Decalogue is not completely the moral law, like we're equating the two, but it does contain it. It shows us God's very character. It's written by God's very character. The Israelites heard it with their very words. This is very important. That's the importance in context. We need to also consider the interpretation of God's law by Christ. Look with me back at Exodus 20, verse 1, and if you need to turn back there, I want to read it again. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. And he's talking about bringing them out of the house of slavery. And this is part of the context. The the broader context is we can't just interpret ourselves by interpret this for ourselves by putting ourselves in the shoes of the ancient Jews. Like we're still living in the in the time at Sinai here, because we're not. These Ten Commandments that are called the the words of the covenant, we need to understand the covenant is going to be broken by sin in chapter 32, the golden calf. And the Old Testament, as it unfolds, sees that there needed to be a new covenant. There needed to be a, a better covenant. In fact, when the prophets describe it, they say this new covenant is not going to be like the old one that was made when they were brought out of Egypt, the one that they broke. Jeremiah 31 says it wasn't going to be a, a, a covenant of, of grace without law. Certainly it was, it was a gracious covenant, but there would be law in this new covenant. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 33. The Lord says in this new covenant, not like back then, I will put my law within them. 
and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall all know me. That wasn't true in in Old Testament times where they all knew him. When he talks about knowing them in this sense, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. There would be many Israelites who would not know him in a saving way, have their sins truly forgiven or have their sins remembered no more. But the Lord looks ahead and he promises there's going to be a new covenant. And in this new covenant, I'm going to put my law in your heart. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to Deal with your sin that you can't deal with. The law, and he, he's, he's pointing ahead to the new covenant where the law would be put in the new covenant believer. Not just in the Ark of the Covenant in, a, in one place, but in every new covenant believer who would have God's very special presence and God's very law within him, in his heart. And so we need to understand we're sitting here many years later, but 1,500 years after these events in Exodus, there was a table where people were remembering the Exodus called the Passover. And Jesus, as he's sitting at that table, remembering all the elements of what happened with Moses, how he brought them out of slavery to Egypt, Jesus takes that cup in his hand and he said to his disciples, and they, they would have recognized these words because they were all looking forward to that day. He says, this is the new covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. That's what we do in communion because of what Jesus revealed and and interpreted himself as the fulfillment of that new covenant promise. And we remember him, and we need to remember this new covenant is not, not... Grace with no law, like we don't need law anymore. God puts the law in our hearts and he gives us grace to obey. And he gives us the spirit to help us to obey and to know what is pleasing to him. And he even reveals more than the old covenant law gave. And he's writing it again, but not on tablets of stone, on our hearts. Here's how Second Corinthians 3.3 3 says it. Christ writes on us, quote, with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ. Paul says we serve the new covenant or we're ministers of the new covenant. God wrote the old covenant law and the God, the son, God, the spirit are also involved in writing the, the new covenant law as well. There's one God, three persons. But we need to understand in a greater and more glorious way than Old Covenant Israel. We can look at Exodus 20, verse 1. As we think about the context, this was God's word in Exodus to people who couldn't see his glory in the cloud. Listen to how John's gospel starts with the the word who is God, with God, and, and was God. Verse 14 of John 1, the word became flesh. This is God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have, John says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We've actually seen the glory of God like like they didn't get to back then. And then he says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Do you understand? We know and we see what Israel couldn't in Exodus 20. In, in verse 2 of Exodus 20, God calls out, I am the Lord your God. Do you remember when Jesus was resurrected? Thomas sees him and Thomas calls out, my Lord and my God. That was a massive statement for people who grew up hearing about how Yahweh is their Lord and their God. Thomas looks at the resurrected Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. I see him right in front of me. What an amazing statement that is. The gospel starts and ends with Jesus is God. And the end of verse 2 in Exodus 20 is echoed in John's gospel. Even that language of the Lord freeing Jews from the house of slavery. Listen to what Jesus says in John 8.34. John 8.34, Jesus tells the Jews, everyone who practices sin is a slave to Sin. He's talking to Jews who say, hey, we're not, we're not slaves. We don't, need to be, we don't need your truth to set us free. Jesus tells them, if you practice sin, you are a slave to sin. The slave, listen to what he says, does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He says, you'll be free from that house of slavery if the son sets you free And then at the end of that chapter, in verse 58, he's going back to Moses and Abraham, and he says this statement, before Abraham was born, I am. And it says the Jews instantly picked up stones to stone him, because they believe he's violating the third commandment. They think he's blaspheming. They understand he is claiming to be the very God who gave those commandments, the one who says, I am in the burning bush, the one who says, I am, when he's giving his commandments, they're, they're recognizing Jesus is saying about himself, I am. He's claiming to be that very God. He's talking like Exodus 20, verse 2. Jesus claimed to be the Lord and God. And before I even move on from that point, I need to ask you, is he your Lord? Is Jesus your God, have you ever seen his glory in that way? Have you confessed, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my God. Your death and your resurrection is my only hope. Even a doubter like Thomas was transformed as he trusted and confessed that. I think we shouldn't call him Doubting Thomas because he actually makes the greatest confession of faith in John's gospel. He's, He's believing Thomas. He might have doubted temporarily, but he's, he's highlighted in the scripture for his belief in Jesus as Lord and God. And then John's gospel says, this whole gospel is written so that you, too, would believe this and not have to see evidences, that you would believe from the scripture, from the gospel of John, that Jesus is Lord and God. And I always encourage people, if they haven't read the gospel of John, if they're newer to the things of Christianity, start with the gospel of John because that's what it's all about But as we look at Exodus 20, verse 2, we need to not interpret this just as one person, the Father speaking. We need to think of the Trinity. The Spirit inspired this. And as you read verse 2, think of the Son who also says, I am. Jesus is our Lord and God. Jesus sets us free indeed. 
You might say in in a greater way, truly free from the slavery of sin, from being in the house of slavery. And that's just John's gospel. But turn, if you would, to Matthew, Matthew 5. And there's a lot of places we could look at. We could look at Isaiah's prophecy that when the Messiah would come, he would teach the Torah, he would teach the law in his kingdoms to come to the nations. But I want to just let Jesus himself interpret the law in his own words in his teaching. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And it's interesting maybe that Matthew highlights that because what he's going to talk about is going to very much relate to another time when the Lord on the mountain taught his people authoritatively. In fact, look at verse 17 in particular. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, that's the smallest little markings on letters, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, these commandments, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. These words strike me. To be honest, these words make me tremble as I want to be very careful to make sure I don't violate what the Lord is saying here. I don't want to relax the least of the Lord's commandments or teach others to. I don't want to miss a, a T cross or an I dotted, the littlest dot over an I. We need to all do the commandments the way that Jesus taught. And then to teach others is a great responsibility to, to understand God's whole counsel rightly in this and to know that Jesus did not abolish the law. What he does in Matthew 5, I believe, is he's amplifying it. He's applying it. And he's also adding his interpretation to it. And there's many other commands that, that he gives to his people that were to teach them to observe everything that he commanded. And there's, there's some debate as to what from the law was fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. Because he says, I've, I've come to fulfill it There's ceremonial aspects of the law, and then there's civil aspects, and there's all kinds of books that I've I've read about that, that there's there's debate. Also, if Jesus is talking about the old covenant form of these commands, or his teaching of the law, even speaking of the commandments that he's about to give here, I, I like the New Testament term, the law of God or the law of Christ that Paul uses in Corinthians and and Romans and Timothy, James also talks about royal law, the law that gives liberty. But I think there should be no debate that we should and must obey God's moral law as it is interpreted by Christ. And I see, in my study, God's Old Testament law as continuing unless it is fulfilled and interpreted otherwise by Christ through His new covenant scriptures. So the sacrificial system 
We could look at scriptures that show that he's fulfilling that as he dies. And then there's statements like he pronounced all foods clean. And we can look at that maybe when we get beyond these Ten Commandments, because there's other commandments that relate to that. But Jesus here in verse 21 and and verse 27, he's not relaxing, you shall not murder. He's not relaxing, you shall not commit adultery. He's going to relate those to the heart, and he's going to rebuke their false interpretation out there, or they're even wanting to narrow it just to the externals. But I say to you, he says, that that shows he's the interpreter. He's the lawgiver. He's also the, the lawyer, the interpreter, if you will. And, and what he's arguing here is not that this is a new meaning that no one should have ever understood before. I think he's rebuking them to say the law was never just for externals. He's correcting the rabbis. And, but there's also times where he, he may be expanding or redefining, like verse 43, when he's quoting the law, you shall love your neighbor. He's redefining, at least for them, that their neighbors include their enemies. He has to tell a whole story about what neighbor means, the Good Samaritan story, because they had missed what a neighbor was. They were trying to narrowly make it just, you know, the people who are like us, the people we like, the people we're closest to. He's like, no, no. The, and I think what he's saying here is the intent of that, not now, but always, was you need to love whoever God has put in your path, including people that you would never love naturally, your enemies, Gentiles. People like the Samaritans. Some of the law Jesus fulfilled. There's other parts of the law that we might say he fills full. So fulfills and he also fills full. He actually shows and says more about some of the laws than the Old Testament said. Like divorce in verse 32, turn the other cheek in verse 39. And in some sense Christ's law is more, not less than The Old Testament said, verse 41, his law goes the extra mile. That's the phrase he uses. But look at just verse 48 to sum it all up. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So he's he's not exhaustively teaching, but he's, he's bringing in the law, and the conclusion of this whole chapter is you need to be, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That doesn't sound to me like Jesus is lowering the bar of law. If anything, Jesus is, is raising it up to show that all fall short of God's perfect standard. Don't miss this. Go to chapter 19. As we think of these ten, you could think of these perfect ten that show that we are not perfect. Because in Matthew 19, verse 16... A man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's a question you might get asked by your coworkers or even by people who, who just have this, what, are the, what do I need to do to, to get eternal life? What are the good deeds, good works I need to do? Verse 17, and he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good there is only one who is good. Don't, don't miss what Jesus says before he's about to give commandments. He's already said, there's only one who is good. Why are you asking me about what's good? He's talking about by the standard of God's law. That's what he, he's going to say. So don't, don't miss, there's only one who is good when he goes on. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. 
The guy said to him, which ones? I mean, the guy should have said, keep the commandments. I've got to keep the commandments to, to have life. But the guy's like, yeah, tell me, tell me which ones. Give me the list. Give me the checklist. Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. That's the Ten Commandments. And then he adds a summary commandment. End of verse 19. Matthew 19, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Yeah, I've got that. Loving my neighbor as myself, all those others. I've done that. I'm asking what what more? What What do I lack And Jesus said to him, and he's bringing it back to this concept of good and perfect again. Verse 21, if you would be perfect, if you're asking about being perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Again, don't miss what he's saying and why he's saying and what he says before that. If you want to talk about perfection, here's here's something to test if you're perfect. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You might say the Tenth Commandment, coveting, or you could say the first commandments about having God first, that possessions were his God, but, but that would also miss the point that he hadn't kept those other laws that Jesus brought up either if he, if he knew the fullness, if he'd been listening to the teaching of Jesus. But here's, I think, something we need to remember in all this. Mark 10 says that when Jesus looked on this man, he looked on him with love. We need to look with love on those who have this works-based mentality or who, who miss it when we try to present God's love for them. Oh yeah, I got that. I, I've had to work in my own heart even the last couple of days of, of just trying to be loving to, to, to those who would respond like that rich young ruler. Jesus is lovingly, don't miss what he's doing, using the Ten Commandments to show you're not good and you can't do good deeds to be saved. But the problem is this guy thought he was all good. And Jesus, maybe even knowing how he's bent, I think adds intentionally, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Had he done that? Do any of us do that? Regularly or even consistently or even at all, truly. This guy did not perfectly honor his parents. He didn't keep that from his youth. He, he, he hadn't perfectly kept his heart, if nothing else, from anger or lust, which Jesus already taught is part of those commands. But Jesus calls him to be perfect, to have heaven's treasure. None of us are perfect. None of us are good by God's law. And, and what this guy should have recognized is that there is one. There is one who is good. There's one person who is actually good by God's law. And that guy was standing right in front of the rich young ruler. There is one who is good. The guy should have said, well, who's, who's the one who is good? Jesus could have pointed to himself, but this guy thought he was good and, and didn't need that. We need Jesus who is perfect and who is a perfect law keeper for us 
Galatians 4, 4 says he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We who are naturally lawbreakers deserving death, that's all of us under the the law, we can actually become loved children by adopting grace, by trusting Jesus being good for us, trusting him being perfect for us, living for us and dying for us and rising for us. If you were here last month when Christine gave her testimony, she talked about how it was God's law, it was the commandments, going through those commandments and measuring herself against that that opened her eyes to see that she needed Jesus, she needed to cry out to Jesus. And I want to say to you, if you've never been there, my prayer is that God's loving law, as you compare yourself to the, in the study or even today, would open your eyes to your sin and your need for grace and your need for Christ because he's the interpretation he's the fulfillment and that takes us to some implications of the Decalogue for us these ten words implicate us all as guilty no one is above the law of God or has kept it perfectly James 2.10 says even if you could keep the whole law and just stumble in one point He's speaking to his Jewish readers. If you'd done 612 out of 613, that one would make you guilty of all. Of course, no one has kept almost all of them, or really any of them when you understand the depth of them. But, but James is saying you're guilty even if you could do that and just lose, break one of them. Think about this analogy. If you've got this long chain with 613 links in it, how many broken links do you have to have to have a broken chain that won't pull? Just one, Right? How many crimes do you have to commit to be considered a, a criminal? And, and I think the reality is as we study God's law in the Decalogue, we're going to see we all fall short of all of the commandments, even some of those that you thought were never a problem for you. And when we get into them, you're going to see how we can all fall short and have fallen short of this. When our kids were little, they were learning the catechism for boys and girls that talks about God's law, but it has a question before that section that says, what does every sin deserve? And the answer is the wrath and curse of God. That's what every sin deserves, and that language comes out of Galatians 3.10. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So if it's, it's based on keeping the law and you don't continually keep all of it, it's not about turning a, a corner and doing better than you used to do. It's like, no, if you haven't continually kept everything written in the book of the law, there is a curse. That means judgment. That's bad news if we don't obey it all. So this is the implication for evangelism. God's law can be used, and you again heard it in, in Christine's testimony, to show people that they are imperfect law breakers, that they are guilty of all, like James 2 verse 10 says, or Galatians 3 10 says, and they're under God's curse. Listen to Galatians 3 11. Let me keep reading that. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law. In other words, none of us can be righteous or saved by keeping the law. That's important. But then it goes on to say, and the good news in verse 13, Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us as it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's written in the law. And Jesus comes and he hangs on the tree. He hangs on the cross to to bear the the curse, to bear the, the wrath of God, the curse of judgment, as if he broke all of God's laws. He's hanging there and being judged as if he broke all of them for all who would ever believe in him. He's punished as an idolater. He's punished as an adulterer. He's punished as a murderer, as a blasphemer, cursing the Lord's name. That's how he's being treated on the cross by God. He's dying for lawbreakers. And he rose. And then as he stands in victory, one of the songs says, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Isn't that good news? That curse of sin has lost its grip on me because Jesus rose and stands in victory and I love what Philip Bliss wrote. I think this should have implications for how we sing. I will sing of my Redeemer and his, and his precious blood to me. On that cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. That's such good news. We're not under the law's curse anymore. And I want you to think about this when we sing at the end, Rock of Ages, this line. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. In other words, nothing I do with my hands can ever fulfill your law's demands. All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's what saving faith is. We don't cling to the law like it'll save us. We cling to the cross and confess and then seek to obey our Lord, and so the implication for any unsaved here, which I know there's always a number, the Lord knows who you are. Maybe you know who you are, maybe you don't. Let the law drive you to see your need for Christ, drive you to salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, in Him alone. And for those who are saved here, the scriptures call us to study the law for our blessing. Here's from the New Testament, James 1.25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law. James calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty. The one who looks intently at that law and studies it and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. James says, this one will be blessed. In what he does. The one who doesn't forget and who intently looks at that law and even holds it up to himself and doesn't forget it, but it does it, that man will be blessed. And, and he calls it the law of liberty. James understood what he didn't understand growing up as a Jew that, that there, there's actually a liberty and a freedom that comes, not free from doing what God wants us to, but there's a, a freedom, a liberty that comes when we're living rightly in the Lord, freed from guilt, freed from condemnation, freed from a a conscience that knows it's violating God's law, and the one who abides by it, James talks about there's an abiding value in intently studying. It's not bondage, it's blessing. And and the New Testament is, is really echoing Old Testament statements like, blessed is the man, Psalm 1, who delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates on it day and night. How often have you meditated on God's law? We need, to, we need to know it. We don't delight in what we don't know. We need to study it. We need to memorize. We need to meditate on it. 
a key to delighting in God's law is abiding in it, according to Psalm 1, which is we're going to be doing that in this series to help meditate more. The New Testament says, blessed is the one who obeys the law that he hears with his ears and, and doesn't turn away from it. And that is really an echo of an Old Testament warning in Proverbs 28, verse 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So there's warnings from the law. Like if you turn your ear away from hearing it, your, your prayers are an abomination. That's a strong word from the law of what our prayers are like to God when we don't want to hear his law. And so, friend, if you don't want to hear God's law, if you just want to tune off or tune out, you're in danger. And I, those, that kind of language is applied to husbands in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, if they're not living out the law of love to their closest neighbor, to their wife, living with her in an understanding way, he says your prayers are, are hindered. And, and wives and mothers, you need God's law too. Proverbs 31, 26 has this statement of the godly woman and mother that the law of kindness is on her tongue. It's, it's a wonderful statement of, of her, her words have the law of kindness, understanding the, the love and the kindness of God that he's revealed. Dads, do you teach God's word to your kids? Psalm 78.5 says God commanded. He gave this law to Israel, and it says he commanded fathers to teach their children. What about your soul? Does your soul need reviving? Does your soul just need life infused into it? Do you need renewal here today? Psalm 19, verse 7, Pastor Corey read it earlier. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law is perfect for that. It can rejoice the heart, revive the soul. There's great reward in keeping it. It can be sweeter than honeycomb. Let me close in Psalm 119. And if you want to turn there, I just want to... Give us some prayers from this. This is all introduction to God's law and its importance, its interpretation by Christ, the implications for us. Next 10 weeks, we're going to follow that pattern with with a deeper dive into each command in context and in Christ's teaching. This is an appetizer to whet your appetite, but my last application is what Corey said earlier. Pray for this study. If his law is not wonderful to you, pray Psalm 119, verse 18. Maybe highlight this. Here's a good prayer. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. If, if you falsely pit grace versus law, pray verse 29. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Graciously teach me your law. That's another prayer. If you need help understanding the complications of applying the law, <laughs> Join the club. Join with me. We need help in that. But here's a prayer we can pray for that. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Let me pray along these lines if you would please bow with me. Our Father, we commit this study and this series to you. Lord, open our eyes that we would see wondrous things in your law. That we would see more of you and more of our need for you. We thank you for the law and the gospel. 
and even showing us in the gospel the way the master used the commandments. Help us to know and grow our love and delight in the Decalogue. It sounds weird even to our world, but we want to obey your ancient rules as absolute and not as obsolete. We want to understand how to apply them rightly, how Christ taught. We thank you for the new covenant and your spirit and your son who is Lord and God who brought so many in this room out of slavery to sin. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.